Two weeks ago, we began our fall series in the book of Exodus, a book we've been walking through each fall for the last, uh, this will be our third year now. And specifically, this fall, we're focusing in on the section that is the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are, in some ways, an enigma to many Christians. You know, in some Christian traditions, they're memorized as part of catechism. In other Christian traditions, they're a political rallying point, a symbol to be displayed in public places, but maybe not necessarily even followed. And in most Christian traditions, the Ten Commandments are something that people have heard of, but whether or not they can be recited is questionable, let, or not, let alone uh, whether or not they're obeyed. Now, we all know that you guys can recite them because we did a pre-test a couple weeks ago, and you just did so awesome. As maybe as weird as the Ten Commandments are and the church's relationship to them, the Ten Commandments are still God-breathed. They were written by God's finger, according to Deuteronomy, on, stones, on, on tablets of stone. They were the first laws given to Israel, and they formed the foundation uh, of most of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And so, I think the Ten Commandments are worth getting to know. Now, if you're just joining us in this series uh, this week, allow me to recap some of what we've learned together about the Ten Commandments over the past couple weeks. We learned that while other ancient cultures had very similar laws structured in the same way that the Ten Commandments are structured, this law that we're looking at is, all, is almost entirely different in some significant essential ways. For example, other ancient laws were given by human kings as a way of keeping people in line. The Ten Commandments, by uh, contrast, were given by God himself as a way of helping people thrive. Other ancient laws were given by a conquering king, basically with the statement, I beat you up, and so now if you want to get along, you'll obey these things that I'm giving you. The Ten Commandments are given by a rescuing God, the one who liberated a people from slavery and captivity in Egypt. His law is preceded by an act of amazing grace. All other ancient laws were relegated to the secular, political, legal side of society, completely separated from the religious realm of society. In other words, you could be considered a faithful worshiper of Baal or Molech and still live a completely unethical life, at least, at least to our standards. The Ten Commandments are the Word of God. They're expressions of God's heart for what healthy human life looks like. These laws were recited and memorized in Jewish worship. So to, com to commit, a, commit a crime against the Ten Commandments wasn't just breaking the legal law, it was also seen as a sin against God. In other words, the Ten Commandments deal with the whole person, the, the spiritual person, the ethical person, uh, the society of people together. Now, so far, we have covered the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments. Uh, basically, thou shall have no other gods before me, and the, the one about making idols. You should not make any uh, likeness of, uh, of a god or the creation or anything like that. Uh, th those are the first two commandments. Today, we're going to explore the third. Uh, before we dive in, would you pray with me, please? Lord, even saying the words Ten Commandments um, causes imaginary dust to come up in my mind as uh, something old uh, or even symbolic, but rarely something many of us dive into with any kind of passion, 
uh, let alone the belief that there could possibly any, be anything life-giving there, especially since, after all, we have Jesus. But Lord, would you open up the scripture to us this evening? I thank you for the Ten Commandments. I thank you for yourself, who is the God behind them. I thank you for your heart in giving them. And I pray by the power of your spirit, you would help us to see you through this commandment this evening. Amen. The third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Or, more literally perhaps, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Or, more colloquially perhaps, from the message translation, no using the name of God, your God, in cursing or silly banter. God won't put up with irreverent use of his name. God gives ten commandments. To Israel. Now, he gives lots of other laws as the books of the Bible go on, but he gives ten commandments. He just rescued the people. He gives ten commandments in the wilderness. That means one-tenth of the commandments that God has given up to this point have to deal with taking his name in vain or a prohibition against it. Why do you think that is? Why is that such a big deal that one-tenth of all the commandments that God has given when the Israelites get into the wilderness are about not taking his name in vain? What's in a name? Let's play a game. We're going to play a game of name association. I'm going to say a name. You blurt out what first comes to your mind. Now, there are some ground rules. I'm going to say some names that are fictitious, some names that are real, and here's the ground rules. I want you to say things about these names that are true, not just your opinion, that are true, so it has to be maybe an opinion based on what these people have said. I want it to be that if that person was in the room with us, they would agree with what you say about them. Fair enough? The first one, low-hanging fruit, of course, Darth Vader. What comes to your mind? I am your father, dork. Dark. (laughs) Forced choke, yeah. Anything else with Darth Vader? Okay. Abraham Lincoln. Beard. President, someone said tall. Underdog. Gettysburg. Good. Bill Gates. Rich. Innovative. Microsoft. Huh? Philanthropist. Absolutely. Donald Trump. Maniac. Oh. Oh. <laughs> He might agree with you if he was here on that other one, too. Opinionated. Opinionated. Yeah. For those of you that know, Zlatan. (laughs) Man bun. bun. What did you say? Swedish. Swedish. Okay. And Mother Teresa. Short and newly a saint. Servant. Yeah. Obviously, a person's name reflects their character or their identity. Knowing the reputation of someone's name tells you a lot about the person. That character or reputation can tell you a lot about what you should expect or could expect if you were to meet that person. So I would expect to have a much different dinner conversation with Darth Vader than I would with Mother Teresa, 
right? Um, I may not make it through dinner with Darth Vader. Uh, In terms of God, then, his name carries with it his reputation. This commandment, I don't know what you think about it, um, but it's not so much as God being worried about what people are going to say about his name. It's not like he's really obsessed about people giving a, a smear campaign against him. And it's not that God is going to get his feelings hurt if we misuse his name. This commandment, just like the other nine commandments of the ten, are not given to protect God. They're given for us. These commandments are instructions for how to enjoy healthy human life. God is the creator of the heaven and earth. Uh, God's desire in setting aside a people for himself is that they reflect God's character to the world. He wants the nations, that means all people, to know him as he really is. He wants people to know that they are loved by God, that they can be rescued by God, uh, that they can be made whole in whatever state of brokenness they're in by God, and that ultimately they can serve as one of God's people. If we misrepresent the name of God, if we give a false reputation of God, we may be putting stumbling blocks before people who don't yet know God. Woe to us if that is the case. So you see, this commandment is primarily about evangelism. It's for the good of people that God's name is rightly proclaimed and rightly reflected in the lives of his followers. And that, I believe, is the foundation of why God gives us this commandment. That's the why God gave the commandment in a nutshell. Now, the big question is, and this is what all the rule followers want to know, what does it mean to not take the Lord's name in vain, to not misuse the name of the Lord? I'll never forget the time I was awkwardly watching a PG-13 movie with my parents and my grandparents. My grandmother is from Kentucky, or was from Kentucky, and she, her whole life, was a faithful Southern Baptist. I don't remember the movie All I remember was there was a particular character in the movie that would often swear from time to time throughout the show, and I would awkwardly just, "Mm, this is so weird watching this with them, I'm not ready for this. And then this actor went across the point of no return, and he said two words, one was God, and the other was the type of dam that's not hydroelectric. And my grandmother said, mercy, I cannot watch this any longer. He has taken the Lord's name in vain. And, you know, we shut it off. And that's how many of us have come to understand this third commandment, that to take the Lord's name in vain is to use it as a swear word. And there's definitely truth to that. Think of someone, just in in this moment, think of someone in your life that you hold precious Guys, it should all be your wife if you're married. Uh, But it could also be, uh, you know, a beloved grandparent uh, or a son or a daughter, someone you greatly respect. Get them in your mind. Now, what if every time something bad happened in the world, people just began to swear by using that person's name? What if every time you smashed your finger or bonked your head, you swore by saying someone's name, basically associating that person's reputation with all the bad things that ever happened to you. 
In the case of God, making his name into a swear word or throwing his name around flippantly is to turn his name and his reputation into a mere expression. And it kind of diminishes him from being this revered creator of the universe and savior of the world to just a byword. The story of my grandmother makes her seem a little bit quaint and outdated. And I have to admit, when I was a a 12 or 13-year-old, I thought, what you just get with the times? What's your hang-up? But you know, there's something to be respected about her reverence. And I think we would all do well to have a little more reverence in our culture, a culture that holds very little actually sacred anymore. The Israelites so honored God that they wouldn't use his name out loud or in writing. Instead, they preferred uh, to, use him, uh, to name him in writing as Adonai, which is often translated as Lord, or Hashem, which is the name. But misusing the Lord's name is more than just using it flippantly or as a swear word. If we continue on in the book of Exodus and then, of course, in the book of Deuteronomy and others, we see an encouragement from the Lord to invoke the name of Yahweh in oaths, between Israel and the nations making treaties together, or when people got married, or when there was a purchase of land. It was actually said to use God's name as a a guarantee of, of the oath. This third commandment, then, is a warning to follow through on your oaths. Basically, don't swear on God's name and then fail to fulfill what uh, your end of the bargain. Otherwise, it makes God's name look bad. You know, later on, Jesus would preach the ethic behind that law in the Sermon on the Mount. Making an oath in God's name as an Israelite is infinitely better than making an oath based on a pagan god or a goddess. But deep down, God's ultimate intent of all of us is to make no oaths at all. Jesus says that we are to be such people of integrity that we don't have to say, I promise, or I swear, that just our yes will be our yes and our no will be our no. The foundational problem with oaths is that they set up a two-tiered system of communication. There's the lower tier that we use every day, and then when we get real serious about stuff, we have to add things to our yes or our no, like, no, I'm really serious, or I totally promise, or I swear on my mother's grave, or things like that. But if we had integrity, we wouldn't have to say those extras, would we? People would just know that when that person speaks, they mean what they say. And here's why that's important. If you're a follower of Jesus, you bear his name. So your honesty reflects on the faithfulness of God and your dishonesty reflects on the faithfulness of God. Another way people would use, misuse the name of God was by using it to curse other people. Now, we ran into this when we preached through uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and specifically in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 4, Paul is addressing a group of people who had been cursing their enemies in the power of Jesus' name. Never mind the fact that we're called to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. It's obvious, right, like we shouldn't do that. Um, here's two main reasons why. First, it gives us the delusion that God is somehow at my beck and call, that if I curse someone in God's name, he is obliged somehow to do what I say, right? We, we don't just get to use his name because that would make us kind of in control. So that, that's the first issue. 
that the creator of the universe doesn't do your bidding and he doesn't do my bidding. The, the second issue is that when we curse others in God's name, in God's name it, it communicates something about God that's fundamentally false. God is fundamentally a God of life. The, the Psalms talk about that when God walks on the earth, and this is all metaphorical, but it's one of my favorite images, that when he walks, like, life springs up in his footsteps. Springs of water and green grass and food for the animals. He's a God of life. And when we use his name to curse other people, we misrepresent him. See, he desires life. He desires fullness of life. He is always leading us toward life, not toward curses and not towards oppression and repression. So when we curse people by holding up signs with flames on them that says that God hates certain types of people, we are misusing the name of God. His initial stance is toward life and toward repentance, not towards damnation. That's his initial stance. Now, closely related to this issue is the danger that every generation has of making God in our image. When the center of Christianity was in Constantinople, a largely Greek-speaking and uh, Greek-thinking center, Jesus is depicted as the ultimate Stoic. Stylized art forms present Jesus always in a didactic pose, and what that means is he's always teaching us something, so when we see this, or this, we're seeing Jesus reminding us that he's two natures, human and divine, and that there's three people in the Trinity. So if you ever see Jesus doing this in, those, uh, in the Orthodox Church, right? And how is he depicted this? I can't even do it. Like, he's just so stoic, like, he, like nothing. He's outside of being affected by anything. Clearly not the passionate Jewish guy that we see in Scripture. So he's made in someone else's image. And when Christianity's center moved west, pictures of Jesus look a lot more like a white German guy than a first century Jew. That Anglo Jesus is stripped of his Jewishness amid the rise of anti-Semitism, and somehow many worshipers of Jesus thought that they were following the Lord Jesus and Hitler at the same time. In many emerging churches in Africa, South America, following the example of many churches in the American South, following Jesus apparently leads to prosperity and health and wealth. Much like a megachurch pastor who flies into church on his or her helicopter or a, or a televangelist. Somewhere along the way, Jesus' teachings about suffering and serving and poverty and the cross get lost conveniently along the way. And in our own setting, Jesus sure does look a lot, a lot like a God of tolerance, doesn't he? He's politically correct. He's probably a vegetarian, and he drives a Nissan Leaf. And I actually wish I had a Nissan Leaf, so I'm, I'm all screwed up. I'm confessing. Like, here's my perspective, right? Although I'm sure he likes steak. Uh, but anyway, uh, the, the parts of Scripture where he calls religious leaders out and he calls them whitewashed tombs. We don't like that part of Jesus. I'm not very confrontational in Bellingham. And, you know, Jesus was confrontational and we seem to scrub those parts away of him here in Bellingham. You don't hear about that a lot. So sometimes we, we, we all do it. We create a God who's in our image, and, and to some degree, we can't help it, right? Because we're, we're products of our culture and, and, and our setting. 
But one thing we can do is respect the way that God is revealed to us. Scripture tells us who God is like and what God is like. Sometimes we make God in our image because we aren't self-aware enough to realize we're doing it. But other times our motives are more sinister. Sometimes people use God's name to control other people. See, we want God to agree with our point of view, so we teach partial truths from Scripture, or we misrepresent God altogether in order to convince other people of our ideas. And this is especially a danger for people like me who talk about God for a living, people like theologians who pontificate and write books that most of us read as somehow authoritative, like, well, they know a lot more than I do. That must be what God is like or what the church should be like. Frankly, that's another reason why I'm committed to preaching expository sermons. Generally, I preach through books of the Bible. Why? Because I'm susceptible to wanting to preach my own hobby horses. And by going through super boring and hard texts of the Bible... Hey, the text chooses me rather than me choosing the text. And it gets to mess with me before I just get to mess with you, right? So that's why I'm committed to doing that. And when there's more than one way to rightly interpret a text, I try and teach at least the the spectrum of orthodox beliefs about that and say, hey, you guys are grown-ups. Decide for yourselves. It's one of the things I try and do. Pastors, theologians, Sunday school teachers, Christian parents, we all have this built-in power differential over the people in our lives. We need to be humble and reverent and careful. I don't mean tiptoeing around things, but careful about the things that we say and how we say the things that we say because our kids are watching, your students are watching, the people in your lives who know that you're a follower of Jesus, they're watching. And sometimes I think we're a little too sure of ourselves to speak on God's behalf. Beware that we don't misrepresent God in our positioning and in our reasoning. He's not a piece of evidence to support the thing that we already want to, uh, to make a point about. He's the living God, and his name is to be feared and revered in humble reverence. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. So we've heard the command, and we've seen kind of why it's important to Israel and important to us. We've explored a few of the ways that this command plays out. Uh, from not swearing using that name to not misrepresenting that name to being a faithful example of a follower of that name. But how does this commandment give us life? I said it last week, I'll probably say it every week, it is my belief that every one of these Ten Commandments is life-giving and points us to Jesus. So how does this commandment do that? How is this life-affirming? How is this commandment good news? Let me show you. First of all, foremost, don't miss the good news that God gives us his name in the first place. He invites you and me to know him. He encourages us to call on his name, and he calls you and he calls me children. Like all the Ten Commandments, the third commandment doesn't remain negative. It points to something positive. It's not just about what not to do, but it inherently, if you use your imagination, uh, it implies the things that we're supposed to do. Earlier, I gave you a list of names, and you rattled off what came to mind when I said those names. I want to give you one more name. 
Jesus of Nazareth. What does that connote in your mind? Love? Salvation? Life? Patience? Redemption? These are all pretty good things. I'd rather have lunch with him than Darth Vader. What is he like? You know what Jesus is like from the scriptures. And when you know what Jesus is like, you know what the Father is like. You know what the name is like. It's amazing that a group of Jewish people with the commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, all of a sudden begin to worship this man, Jesus. Don't you think that's weird? It would seem to be a clear infraction of the first commandment. And yet, Clearly, the scriptures point to the startling reality that Jesus is somehow mysteriously also God in the flesh. His Hebrew name, Yeshua, means something to the effect of Yahweh saves. His title, Emmanuel, means the with us God. He came to be known as Lord, which is how Yahweh is addressed in the Old Testament. Jesus did things that only God can do. Jesus said things that only God should have the ability to say. And those early disciples of Jesus, who were mostly devout Jews, concluded what Paul concluded in his letter to the Philippians. God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above all names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It turns out that this third commandment about misusing the Lord's name is not primarily negative. It points to something or someone positive. Through Jesus, the perfect bearer of the name, we are invited to take the Lord's name. If you look at your bulletin, the title of the sermon is, was it taking the Lord's name, right? Elizabeth called me this week. I just want to make sure that's not a typo. Aren't you preaching on taking the Lord's name in vain? But that is exactly what I think this points to. It's not a negative prohibition only about not misusing the Lord's name, but what if it's also embracing the fact that you've been given the Lord's name? We are invited into the family of God through faith in Jesus. And no matter what your name, no matter what your reputation, no matter what past you have, no matter what baggage weighs you down, you're invited to take on a new name. The name of God the Father through Jesus the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. That is incredible news. Because I know human nature. (laughs) I'm one of them. And I know there's lots of things associated with my name. Some things people know about. Some things people I'm so thankful they don't know about. If you could read my heart and my mind sometimes, I'd be so ashamed of that name. And I'm invited to take on the name of Jesus, the name of God, to be invited into his family. And so are you. That's a new beginning, people. That's good news. That's gospel in itself. You may have been ashamed by your past, or by your now. But now in this name, you can be dignified. You may have felt or feel inadequate, but in Christ, you can be content in his all-sufficiency. You may have earned the name bridge burner, violent aggressor, 
all under the auspice of survival at all costs. You may have really hurt some people along the way, but now you can take on the name of the reconciler, the Prince of Peace, the Lamb of God who takes away your sin and the sin of the world. You see this good news of what it means to bear the name? The fundamental sin of humanity is trying to make a name for ourselves. That was the sin of Babel. It's the sin that we keep repeating over and over again. And the reality is that the way of life and wholeness is found when we live for the glory and joy of Jesus' name, not our own. And then we find, oh my gosh, this name is way better than I thought. And I don't have to do it all on my own. It's not in my own strength. So rather than worrying about, not mis, or about uh, misusing the name of God, I want to show you four steps of positive engagement made possible because of Jesus. It just so happens that they all start with the letter P, so for Nicole, you can appreciate that. And um, This is the part for all the note-taking people. This is like the payoff, okay? So four Ps of how we can posit, turn this commandment into a positive. First is particularity. Let me explain that. How do we honor the name of God? By honoring the fact that he's particularly revealed in Jesus. Stanley Hauerwas and William Willimon co-wrote a book, and this is a quote from their book. They write. I'm sure only one of them wrote this, but they write. Okay, whatever. We have become confused into thinking when we hear the term God that we're having a description of some vague, allegedly universal human experience rather than name. As in, all the gods are the same kind of thing, okay? They continue, God is the name Christians are told to call Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You cannot get to this name through long walks in the woods, hugging trees, delving into your psyche, sitting quietly in your room, or getting in touch with your inner child. This God cannot be known other uh, than by revelation. He's not just this ambiguous feeling or experience that we have when we see a sunset, as wonderful as that is. And hear me, I think all those things point to God. But you wouldn't get his name from just those experiences. They all point to a longing to something deeper. But it is in Jesus, the particular man, the particular God-man, that we see just what God is like. And so we want to honor the name of God. We will say God is like Jesus, and where where we're tempted to say God is something else that doesn't line up with Jesus, we need to let that thing go. In other words, Jesus is the authorized representative of the name. So then know him and trust him, follow him. If you do, you'll be honoring the name. Okay, second thing, prayer. Joy Davidman points out that the corollary to thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain is thou shalt take the name of the Lord your God. Like, we have this incredible resource, if you want to call it that, even that seems a little bit demeaning, but we get invited to call on the name of the Lord all throughout Scripture. Call on the name of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Ask for forgiveness from the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. Cry out to the Lord when you're in trouble. Cry out to the Lord when you are in pain. How many times do we just forget that that's really a, 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 
Maybe not even an option. Maybe in your mind it's, well, that's not a very practical option. I've got real problems. I don't know what good it's going to do to call out to the name of the Lord. Let me put it this way. By not calling on the name of the Lord, it's kind of offensive to him. It's in a way taking his name in vain. It's like, well, yeah, I've got this. I could do it, but I'm going to get on. I'm going to take control of my own life and make things happen. See that? The God of the universe has invited us into his family. He spread his family name over us. He invites you to pray in his name. What a gift to know we have a God who listens and a God who speaks to us in prayer. Okay, third thing. Praise. We praise his name. We gather together like we are today to proclaim what he's done and who he is and who we are as people who bear his name. How easily we forget in the other six days. And that's assuming you've got a, a midweek Bible study and you do your quiet time on a semi-regular basis. I forget all the time. There's a quality about joining together, hearing my brothers and sisters sing and reminding myself through singing some of these words or hearing the words of Scripture. Oh yeah, remember what God has done. That's who He really is. He really is all-sufficient. He really is over all of my woes and my problems, it puts them all in perspective. When we give praise to the Lord, we're reminding ourselves and each other of his character and his reputation. And we encourage each other to trust him afresh. Particularity, prayer, praise, and the fourth thing, of course, is practice. The great privilege of bearing the name of God as followers of Jesus means that people are watching. Whether it's right or wrong, people are watching. And they're making a judgment about the reputation of God based on his followers. The bumper sticker that still kills me is, God, save me from your followers. What would someone think about Jesus by paying attention to you I want to be quick to say that's an important question to ask but you guys you guys know how your faith works and I firmly believe that the spirit is you know can work in people despite us I mean it has to right because none of us have got it all together but it's still an important question to ask like if I bear the name of God I want to do right by at least with his help, reflecting his name well. Doesn't mean, doesn't mean if you screw up, like your kids aren't going to believe in Jesus or something like that, you know what I mean? But, but as best we can, let's try and reflect that name faithfully. It's not a call to perfection. It's a call to humility. And that's what I really want to highlight. It's a call to service. It's a call to the gospel. You know, people don't expect you to be perfect. But it, there is a certain type of person that I'm a follower of Jesus, and I never admit I'm wrong, and I'm wrong all the time. You see what I'm saying? Like, people just can't abide with an arrogant Christian. People are fine, usually, with Christians who say, I'm a Christian because I don't have it all together. I need the Lord, and who frequently are able to say, hey, I screwed this up, or help me serve you. It's a, it's a quality about a faithful person uh, that is humble. When we take the Lord's name... We take on his way of life along with his salvation. Like someone who has had a great debt forgiven or new life when faced with death, 
We should be people who are gracious and humble and loving and hospitable. Let's give thanks to the one who gives us his name and let's ask for the grace to take that name on as our own. Can we do that in prayer? Lord, what an amazing thing it is that you have adopted us into your family through faith in Jesus. For those who come here this evening maybe ashamed of their name, at least of their interior reputation who are looking for rescue, for a new start, for a new name. I pray that you would release faith, that they would experience your invitation now to say, yes, Lord, I trust you. I trust you for forgiveness. I trust you for newness of life. I want to bear your name. Lord, for those who have been part of the family of God for some time and yet know that we could really grow in bearing your name more accurately, more faithfully, I pray for grace. I pray for that grace from within, from your power to desire you more, to have reverence for your name. Lord, would you remind us where each of us comes from? And may that give us a profound sense of thanksgiving toward you and humility toward our fellow brothers and sisters. Lord, help us to walk in faithfulness to you as you have been so faithful to us beyond all that we could ask or think or deserve. Amen.